On my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares. I will seek whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or those of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it ceases. Alright, so on my bed, night after night, I sought him whom my soul loves. <clears throat> so what is going on with this? I'm, I'll throw out my theory, but I'm not confident. The fact that she's doing this night after night on her bed, I wonder if this isn't almost her, like, dream or maybe nightmare. That she's expressing her subconscious fears and insecurities, and that she's afraid of losing him. You know, there's a problem with closeness. It makes you more vulnerable and more afraid to lose the person you're close to. And you see a lot of people, you know, falling in love even, and then they can't handle it and they break up because they're just they're just insecure and traumatized by the closeness. So I'm thinking this is something she dreams about, and she's afraid of losing it. And so she's she's dreaming and she's seeking him, but she can't find him. She gets up and she goes all over the city seeking the one whom soul soul loves. She can't find him. You know, this is, you know, it's kind of like these dreams that you have that you can never do what you need to do. Sandra was telling me the day she dreamed this weird thing about she was, she was in college and she could never get to class on time and, you know, she couldn't find the class or whatever. I don't know. You know, that was a dream. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it's like, wow, why do we think these things? Well, there's probably something. And and for her, I think this is what she's worried about. You know, she's got a one-track mind. She can't get her him out of her mind. In fact, the watchmen, who are, you know, kind of, um, you know, policing the city, find her, and she says, have you seen him whom my soul loves? She didn't even bother <laughs> to mention his name. Everybody's thinking about him, right? He's the only person on her mind, you know. Uh, and, and you know, she clearly is taking the initiative. At least in, in her dream, or if this is a real thing, either way, she's not waiting passively for him to come back. She wants him so badly, she gets out of her comfort zone, she risks her, you know, safety and security. She can't find him, the guards find her, but she can't find him. Um, and then, scarcely ha- had she left them, when she found him! She found the one who her soul loves, and man, she's not letting go of him. She's hanging on to him for dear life. I held on to him and would not let him go until I brought him to my mother's house and into the room of her who conceived me. So she is so determined and she's tenacious. And, uh, you know, anybody who tries to interpret this book as saying they're not married yet? Whoa. I mean... It looks to me like bringing him to my mother's house into the room 
Of her who conceived me? It was the tumor of her childhood. <laughs> yeah, right. This is where I was born. <laughs> yeah. Well, attached to girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> it seems to me like there's uh, nothing left in the imagination much on what happens there. Um, and, and you've got this brought uh, idea. You know, the king has brought me into his chambers, one, four. In two, four, he's brought me to his banquet hall. And now in three, four, I brought him to my mother's house. That seems to be a kind of a verb of uh, significance there, that you're bringing them. You understand what you're bringing them for or bringing them to. Now, I think about this. Is this not the seeking and attachment we ought to have to the Lord? You know, we ought to seek him for all he's worth. And when we find him and get him, we ought not to let him go. You know, we need to have that much craving to be close to him. You know, I mean, you think about what people do as they pursue a, a relationship, even before they're married and certainly after. Do we have that much earnest desire for the Lord? Or are we con- content with just a casual relationship with him? You know, we're just nodding acquaintances. You know, she's obsessed with this man. We ought to be <coughs> obsessed with the Lord. And I want to say this as well. Um, I think we need to say this from time to time in Song of Solomon. You could get the impression from this book, if this is all you read, that you're just not fulfilled if you're not married. Well, I think the fact that this describes the relationship of the Lord and his people means I am fulfilled if I never find a mate through that love that I have for the Lord and that he has for me, that is sufficient. In fact, the person who is desperate to get married and determined to do so at all costs because they're just so unsatisfied without it, well, love is wonderful, but without the relationship with the Lord, it will be unsatisfying. No no human being can ever supply me with what I need the Lord for. So I think it's it's helpful to stop and think, this is really describing my relationship with the Lord, how I seek him, how I cling to him, how much he means to me. So I haven't mentioned verse 5 yet, but thoughts and comments to these first four verses. Well, that's good since I wouldn't be able to answer them anyway. Verse 5 uh, he, she's back to this, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you not arouse or awaken love until she pleases. I've got an italicized my. Take that out. I don't think she's talking about awaken her love. Surely it's not the daughters of Jerusalem that are awakening her, awakening her love. I think he's done the fine job of that. Uh, but awaken their own love, really, until the right time. In other words, she's telling these unmarried uh, companions of hers, this isn't for you yet. You know, uh, there is a time and a place, she's not saying don't ever fall in love, but until you're <laughs> married, don't try to seek this prematurely. I think that's exactly what she's saying. I mean, it's like there is a difference between... Seeking an intimate relationship without marriage and having an intimate marriage. The marriage has security, has permanence, has commitment, has no guilt. 
the seeking it without marriage is insecure. It's uh, self-centered. It's it's you know passing. It's it's not the same thing. There is a level of adrenaline in illicit relationships, just like there was for Eve to eat that forbidden fruit. So there are people who that's what they prefer. They may be married, but they really prefer these side relationships because there's more excitement in them. But. You know, it's the excitement of going out of bounds, of doing the forbidden. And that's an excitement that we need to stay away from. Those are forbidden excitements, and they're very empty, and they're very damaging. But the the intimacy of, of, of the secure, committed relationship, you know, is so much better and different. You know, you take the person who's willing to just live with somebody or spend the night with somebody, they're exploiting them. They're using that person's body for their own <coughs> enjoyment with an unwillingness to commit their life to that person. That is, that's, that's not, that's not cool. And that's what she's saying here, I think, in verse 5. Alright, thoughts and comments then through 3 5. Seems a little weird to put a dream in the middle <coughs> There's a lot of things that seem weird to me about Song Solomon, so. Yeah. <laughs> Could be, how else you would explain it? I mean, it could be a real thing, but the fact that she night after night on her bed is seeking him, surely it's not hard to get every night. She'd have to go out and you know drag him back into her. But why would she go out and look for him if she knew where he was? Yeah, it, it makes more sense to me as a dream, but I don't know. See where she's longing for. I mean, just sort of. Because you know, he's gone and so she's wanting him, so... So she goes out and searches for him and finds him every night and drags him back to her mom's house. <laughs> well, I mean, she's night after night, she's seeking him. But, I mean, I get the idea that she's been longing for him over and over and over. And finally, she, go, she goes out and she's searching the city and the watchmen are looking at her like, okay, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, okay. and, and maybe so. I mean, clearly my interpretation is... You know, not built on a whole lot, so. The ESV says, on my bed by night I sought him whom my soul loves. Um, so, that doesn't necessarily sound like a continuing thing, maybe like a one-time thing. She woke up and he wasn't there. Yeah. But also it says, I sought him on my bed at night, which, you know, sounds like, you know, this happened while she was asleep and yeah. dreaming or something. Yeah. If this was a real thing, I would have said, where did you go? Well, <laughs> <laughs> you're a hard guy to find at night. <laughs> I mean, the whole, the whole quality of the story doesn't sound like something that really happened. Right, that's what I think. It sounds poetic. That's what I think. Well, I mean, obviously, the rest of it is too, but we don't make the rest of it a dream. It's just stating metaphorically. Mm-hmm. So maybe this is, in a way, stating something that okay. doesn't have to be right. a dream. I could buy that as well. Right. Mm-hmm. He's distracted by the TV. She's trying to play. <laughs> <laughs> the Colts are playing. Right. <laughs> 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 for a little while. Until <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, 
not that anybody would want to see them this year. <laughs> okay, I have a random question. I have a random answer. Then <laughs> we're on the same page. That's okay. <laughs> so, so the, talking about the illicit relationship and and that kind of thing, is there a is there a parallel to that in how we would use God or try to use God? Uh, I mean, I I get in the little picture in my head of of God as a vending machine, like in Malachi, and and. Uh, yeah, not point? having a commitment to him, but just trying to get stuff out of him mm-hmm. when we need him. Yeah, I yeah. think that would be a similar concept. Okay. Yeah. Or developing a relationship with other things. Yeah, obviously that. that not yeah, you got that all over the Bible, so definitely that. Well, if that was difficult, this next one is harder for me yet. I don't know what to do with this. 6 to 11. What is this coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all scented powders of the merchant? Behold, it is the traveling couch of Solomon, sixty mighty men around him of the mighty men of Israel. All of them are wielders of the sword, expert in war. Each man has his sword at his side, guarding against the terrors of the night. King Solomon has made for himself a sedan chair from the timber of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, and its seat of purple fabric, with its interior lovingly fitted out by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and gaze on King Solomon with the crown, with which his mother has crowned him on the day of his wedding, and on the day of his gladness of heart. All right, well, it starts asking the question, what is this coming up from the wilderness? And I still wonder what the answer to that one is. You know, it's quite a visual, you know, with columns of smoke perfumed with, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense and the scented powders of the merchant. And uh, we do find out what uh, what is uh, being ridden on. This is the uh, sedan chair, uh, traveling couch. What? I didn't get all that, but... <laughs> well, this is like, you know how they did with, uh, you know, really important people. They would be carried up on this couch, chair, whatever, you know, indicating they were really special and you'd have all these people carrying them. That was their form of uh, luxury transportation. <laughs> you know, it seems kind of, I don't know, different to me. But I think that's what you've got. You, I think you've got Solomon's, um, I don't know, really, I see all kinds of words, but not a word I'd ever use. Palanquin. Uh, but do we have a word that we'd use for that? Like a litter? A litter? I see that word. And I don't use litter that way. But, uh, yeah. It's not in the books I, that I read. I would say litter. That's <laughs> okay. Yeah, I've never, I've never used litter for anything like that. But I don't think I've got a word for it. So litter may be the best word we've got. Like the item, the contraption that is carried. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I see litter all over the place. I just wouldn't have ever, uh, used that. Uh, we, I've got into you the standard traveling couch. You don't read enough fantasy princess. <laughs> 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 That's my problem. You would understand Solomon better. Well, I'll trust that you all will be experts then in this uh, particular area. So uh, you've got this litter then of Solomon with all the mighty men around it. 
And they're all, I mean, they're going to defend whoever's the occupant of this litter. They've got the sword at their side. They're guarding against the terror of the night. This is clearly Solomon's litter made from the timber of Lebanon with silver posts and gold back and purple fabric and lovingly fitted out interior. I mean, this is the best possible in luxuriant, luxuriant transportation. And uh, what's on it, though? Uh, I take it. Now, this, is, this is debatable. I think it's Solomon's bride. That's what I think. Now, some people think it's Solomon, but I prefer seeing this as Solomon's bride. Don't ask me which one of them. Um, that that's coming to the wedding, and uh, they say, "Go forth, O daughter of Zion, and gaze on King Solomon with the crown with which his mother has crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of his gladness of heart." So it's almost got, like you've got this escort party. Um, you know, the mighty men that are escorting uh, the, the soon-to-be Mrs. Solomon to the wedding. And they're protecting her and providing for her, and it's the best possible material. And this is quite a production. That What I see in this is, whoa, wow. This is, uh, this is, I mean, when you... This is this is like uh, having sixty best men. You've got these sixty people, you know, guarding the 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 litter and all this. And I take this. This is really a hard passage for me to interpret. But based on an analogy in chapter eight, I take this as a contrast. That this is what this is Solomon style, you know, Solomon. He's got the litter, and he's got all the men, and he's got the crown, and he's got... And this is a production. You know, I don't know if he surely didn't do this for every one of his wives, uh, but maybe this is an important wedding. And it's just quite uh, theatrical, quite uh, adorned. Uh, this is... this. There's nothing... Uh, there's nothing plain Jane about this. This is all, you know, top-notch stuff. And, and that what we see in the relationship between these two in the book is not like that. You know, he comes bounding like a gazelle to looking in her window. You know, and I don't, I'm not saying that was the marriage, but still it's, it's, it's not, you've not got all this, uh, fine stuff. You are going to see more or less kind of the, uh, maybe, maybe in some sense is a marriage idea. At least she'd been a locked garden and then, then he comes into it and so forth by in chapter four. So that's the best I know what to do with it. I take it as a contrast. Now let me defend myself a little bit with what's said in chapter eight. Um, look at chapter eight and, uh, verse 11. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He entrusted the vineyard to caretakers. Each one was to bring a thousand shekels of silver for its fruit. My very own vineyard is at my disposal. The thousand shekels are for you, Solomon, and two hundred are for those who take care of its fruit. Now, I take that as being kind of like Solomon has this harem that won't quit, and he's got to have caretakers to take care of all these wives. But I've got a vineyard that's mine, and I wouldn't trade one, the, my one for all of yours, Solomon. You can keep the money, you can keep whatever. I've got my vineyard and that's all I want, that's all I need and it's better than everything you've got. 
So I'm taking this as, you know, kind of this contrast between what Solomon does and the simplicity of this union between this couple. Are we going with Solomon writing this book? I think so, but I'm not absolutely Isn't committed to that. Solomon writes about himself in the first per- in the third person. Well, more so that like I don't know between the two, like, or that he would be comparing this right. Like to this himself. seems like lesser. What Solomon does, it doesn't seem as like special. Special, but then Solomon's writing about himself is not as special. He's inspired. And think about what he writes in Ecclesiastes. Writes about a lot of failed attempts at finding meaning in life. Right. Um, you know, I, I don't know why this reminded me of it exactly, but it sort of reminds me of Agur, who said, surely I'm more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man. <laughs> that's how he starts out his wisdom. <laughs> in Proverbs 30, verse... Uh, uh, two, so I don't know. That probably doesn't apply, but it made me think of it. <laughs> and I think that's really a remarkable statement. I mean, what if I quoted that somewhere along the line and said, is that in the Bible? I bet you 99 out of 100 Christians would say, no, that's not in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody would identify who wrote it. Agur. Agur, yes. We would know. <laughs> Good. Can you defend why you think it was a woman traveling in Solomon's chair? Because I think he's talking about his wedding and he's bringing her in on the, you know, red carpet, white Did they carpet. not bring him in? That's what a lot of people think. It, that seems more natural to me. Like, I think I'd have to have evidence to put it the other way. Yeah, just verse 7. It's the traveling couch of Solomon. Well, I think he and took it, he sent his litter to bring his bride. Then why does it say to look at Solomon? You look at the bride. Not that, the that's the other thing. Verse 11, it's like, here it comes. Now everybody run and go look at Solomon. Right. Because right. he's writing on it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah maybe so. I certainly wouldn't argue this one straight. <laughs> uh, but I've more assumed that, you know, you do look at him, but he's he's bringing her on the chair. If it's Solomon coming in on a chair, whoa, that's even worse to me. It's like, he wants to ride on this litter, and what's she coming in on? So who knows? But I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't swear to that one at all. And really, chapter three as a whole is probably my weakest chapter in the book for trying to figure out what it's talking about. Yeah, there's nothing in the chapter that says anything negative about this. It is certainly different than the nature imagery. This is very man-made and more hard and glittery. But it's still related in a positive tone of voice from everything I can tell. Yeah, I mean, okay, but it's sure not like what he has with her. That makes sense. Yeah, I don't know. I just don't know what else to do with it. I mean, this, of course, would be a good passage for those who believe Solomon was the man. Mm-hmm. But, man, I have difficulty with that. Just because how can Solomon be the man in this situation? You know, I, that just doesn't strike me as possible. And it doesn't fit with 8, 11, and 12, where you keep your money, Solomon. I'll take my own. My vineyard's all I want. So I, I see Solomon as in the third person here. He's, you know, 
He's not the the man. But but if you wanted to argue that he was, you could argue that well, this is his wedding. A lot of people do. A lot of people would say that see this as they're coming to the wedding, so everything up to the end of chapter three is the courtship, and then she, the wedding is the end of chapter three, chapter four, and then the consummation is the end of chapter four, first part of chapter five, and all that. But uh I don't, I just can't see how you can take the first three chapters as they're not married yet. So, those are some of the challenges, and if you see it otherwise, you're welcome to it. One way to look at if Solomon is the author and why is he sort of putting himself down kind of thing in the contrast is he would rather have the simple love of one woman than the pomp and circumstance and all the mess ups of 700 wives and 300 concubines or whichever way it was. Which if you say that you're close to what I think bottom line at any rate so. You can, I can kind of see a difference in the relationships talked about here, too, and the sense of, like, the amount of pride. It's like, this is this seems very flashy and showy what's happening here, whereas in in the former relationship, he's basically, he's going up to her window, she's asking strangers, or a, a stranger, where the man she loves is. You know, right. like, they obviously are, like, not... They are like afraid to express their love for each other, even when maybe it looks them look makes them look a little foolish. You know? Right? Yeah, it's <laughs> a simpler, more unadorned kind of a thing, from my perspective. Chapter four, verses one to seven.